Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Today we are in chapter 11, and we will do the first 11 verses, or read the first 11 verses, and hope they do us. Not we're going to do them, they're going to do us. If anything gets done, worthwhile. And this is probably one of the most beloved chapters in the Old Testament. Uh, many have called uh, Israel here the, the prodigal son, sort of the Old Testament version of the prodigal son. And yet, in some respects, it's like that. In others, it's not. But I think the thing that you need to focus your attention on today with me is understanding the nature of God's heart toward his people and the way he loves us, even in the face of betrayal. Uh, I've thought about this for many years. I, I cannot love that way. It's just beyond my being to do so. Empowered by God's Spirit, I can for a little while. But I can't love like this. And it just blows me away uh, as we get a, a quick look into the heart of God. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, and the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a, ma not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would illumine our minds, you would enlighten us 
by the work of your Spirit and the ministry of your Word to show us the truth today and to incline our hearts toward listening and hearing and experiencing and living out the implications of what you say to us today. And we pray that as we hear this word, you would use it to produce in us fruit that would redound to the glory of your name. That people would be far more impressed with Jesus in us than they are with us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Obviously, Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the most poignant passages in the entire book. And here we sort of get a glimpse into the heart of God as a doting father. We get a glimpse of the family photo album, the day that God adopted Israel as his own, their first steps as little ones, uh, the patching up of a skinned knee, the lifting up for a kiss on the cheek, but it's shot through with pain because verse 2 tells us the more they were called, the more they went away. There was a hardness to Israel. There was a heart that was numb to the word of the Lord. And the more God called them, the more he showed them mercy, the more he blessed them. The goodness of God did not lead to repentance, but rather the people hardened themselves. Do you ever get hard like that? Do you ever, because of disappointment, bitterness, uh, you're thinking and anticipating what's going to happen and it doesn't work out that way, and you kind of want to go back to the Lord and say, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I understood the Christian life to be. Some TV evangelist told me I can have my best life now, and I'm not having it. And so inside there grows a little bitterness, a little resentment, a, a bit of a grudge toward God because he didn't come through like I expected. And so I begin to do what anybody who hurts me or offends me do. I start tuning him out. And that is precisely what his people had done. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning, and that's a very good description of where you are at the present. You're just sort of on the periphery. You're just sort of hanging around, but you're not really hearing the word of the Lord in all of its power. So in the first four verses of this text, we see the father's tender heart as he sort of looks back to the past and in retrospective speaks of the beginning of the relationship which was sweet and filled with joy. And so when God commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh, this is what he told him. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It is the first time in the Bible that God reveals himself as a father, with Israel as his son. God demands Pharaoh let his son go free so that the father and son might be together and united in worship. If Pharaoh refuses, then Pharaoh's own son is going to pay the price. And this is indeed what happens with the death of all the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son in the 10th 
and final plague. Hosea 11 recalls this event. This was the childhood of the nation when God first chose Israel to be his people, setting his love upon them. And when God called Israel out of Egypt, he was calling his sons into freedom. And the New Testament sees our own conversion and our own regeneration as an exodus from slavery in Egypt as well as a picture of the work of Jesus. Jesus redeems us from slavery to sin and to death through his death. And just as God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt through the death of the Passover lamb, the New Testament sees this as an act initiated by the Father so that we can know him as our Father. In Romans chapter 6, Paul sort of reworks the story of our exodus to describe our liberation from sin. In Romans 7, he reworks the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in the light of Christ's coming. Then in Romans 8, he describes how we are led by the Spirit to our glorious inheritance, just as Israel was led by the pillars of cloud by day and fire at night to their inheritance in the promised land. But Paul says this in Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so we understand something of the tenderness and the nature of God's love toward his people. Israel discovered her identity as God's son through the Exodus in the same way we as Christians discover that we are God's children through our own Exodus. That we have been adopted in the family. J.I. Packer once said, if you want to sum up the teaching of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, it is this, adoption through propitiation. That is, Christ himself satisfied everything God demanded of us. He satisfied the wrath of God by taking our sin upon himself. He satisfied the righteousness God demanded by rendering a perfect obedience to us. And then we are adopted as God's children, as much as if we are his very own. And in Jesus, we are looked at through the lens of who he is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. The problem was for Israel, and the problem often is for us, is we have an amazing capacity to forget who we really are. We forget our identity. The people did not live as liberated sons, but as vulnerable orphans who needed the protection of other gods, so they thought. As verse chapter 11, verse 2 says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols or incense. We can use our own experience of family life to visualize God's affection for his people and his tenderness toward them. When we meditate on his affection and tenderness toward us, then imagine the pain of betrayal. Imagine God's heart when we sin. 
Imagine young children running off in a park, fearing for their safety. Their father yells and calls them back to himself, but his shout only frightens them. The fear of punishment that might be coming from the father causes them to run further and further away. And this is how we are to picture Israel. The more God called them, the more they resisted, and the further Israel ran away from him. Why? Because they did not trust that God was gracious. They did not really believe that God loved them, and they did not really see that they were his children. The great English Puritan John Owen wrote, so long as the father is seen as harsh, judging, and condemning, the soul is filled with fear and dread every time it comes to him. So in Scripture, we read of sinners fleeing and hiding from him. But when God, who is Father, is seen as Father, filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And yet, in verses 3 and 4, Hosea continues. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them to feed them. This imagery, if you look at it carefully, is very tender. We have all seen small children taking their first steps supported by their father as they cling to his hand. That is the image that Hosea is evoking here to describe the way Yahweh loves Israel. God is father who held Israel by his hands as Israel took his first steps. Then the picture shifts somewhat. Imagine a sick child. Her father forces her to take medicine. Medicine he knows she hates, and she wants to refuse it. Uh, but the child protests at her father's ap ap apparently cruel treatment. The child protests as her father provides the treatment. This is how Israel views God's involvement in her life. But any onlooker can see that the father is acting for the child's good. They did not know that I healed them, says the God of Israel. The second half of verse 4 keeps scholars up at night trying to figure out how to translate this. It could be that in the middle of a metaphor, uh, Hosea changes horses and goes from a metaphor of a father to husbandry. But I don't think that's what's going on. The ESV, which I'm reading from, says it this way. I led them with cords of kindness. Then I became to them as one who eases the, the yoke of their jaws on their jaws. This is the most natural translation for the word translated yoke. But it involves an awkward switch of metaphors. And yokes usually fall across someone's back rather than go through the jaw. Yoke has the same consonants as the word child in the Hebrew. You do understand the Hebrew, uh, the original text, has no vowels. And so we supply the vowels according to context to make sense of the text. And so the word yoke and the word child, na'ar, have exactly the same consonants. 
So could it be, this should be translated, um, maybe another way. The NIV, I think, does a better job here. The NIV says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Again, it's a tender image. First, we see God lifting Israel into his arms and nuzzling her to his cheek. Then we see him bending down to feed her. Again, the importance of this vision of the Father's tender heart is underlined by that great English Puritan, John Owen. This is in the front of your bulletin. I'll read it for you now. Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than that their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God. There's still in them a resistance to walking close with God. The more we see of God's love, so much more shall we delight in Him. All that we learn of God will only frighten us away from Him if we do not see Him as loving and merciful to us. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of His nature, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by Him. This, if anything, will arouse our desire to make our eternal home with God. If the love of, the, of a father will not make a child delight in him, what in the world will? I added in the world. So do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the father. And see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water. And, and you will soon find the stream sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will not now be able, even for a second, to keep any distance from him. That is why this same Puritan, John Owen, said this, The greatest sin, the greatest sin, the greatest sin a Christian can commit is to refuse to believe that God loves us the way he says he does. That's why there's so little joy in our lives. That's why there's so little running to the Father. Because we have that prodigal suspicion. In the back of my, our minds, we're thinking, the best I can do is be a hired servant because I have really blown it. I have really messed up. I have shredded the commandments. And there couldn't possibly be anyone who could love me in the face of that because I know myself I would never love anybody who treats me the way I treat God. And yet the reality is, as we're seeing here, this wayward son, Israel, God says, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? That love is overpowering. Then in verses 5 through 7, we see something of, we might call it, the father's broken heart as if, or as it were, his broken heart. According to Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21, the punishment for a persistently rebellious son was death. If a, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, one called incorrigible, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Extremely harsh. Not to say that some of you might have thought about it, but it's harsh. But there's an important rationale behind it. So shall you purge evil from your midst, 
All Israel shall hear and fear. Individual Israelites had to learn parental obedience because Israel itself was the son of God and needed to be an obedient son. And in Deuteronomy 5, Moses reminded the people of the Ten Commandments, including the Fifth Commandment. With its call to honor your father and mother, this commandment has a promise attached to it, as you know. The uh, promise is that your days may be long and that it will go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Moses echoes these words in his conclusion to his reiteration of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. So the fifth commandment does not arbitrarily have a promise attached to it. Israelite children had to learn to be obedient to their parents. In so doing, they were learning a pattern of obedience that would shape the culture of the nation. But Israel has been a rebellious son, and now God speaks of punishment. Verse 5 could be, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. Israel was enslaved by Egypt, but now they will be enslaved by Assyria. Or verse 5 could be, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them? Israel will return to slavery in Egypt, only this time it will be Assyria. In other words, their return to Egypt is metaphorical. The reality is exile in Assyria. We have met this idea before in Hosea chapter 9. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat the unclean food in Assyria. Israel's fate will be like a reversal of the entire Exodus story. It'll be like a return to slavery in Egypt. But it is Assyria who will defeat them and enslave them, not Egypt. But look, the clause they call out to the Most High in verse 7 is literally upwards they call on him. So the NIV and the ESV seem to take this as a reference to God Most High. But it's hard to reconcile with the previous line where the prophets are bent on turning away from the Lord. So it is more likely to be a reference to the mountain shrines of Baal. That's who they're calling upon. The call upwards is not a call to where Yahweh dwells, but to the mountains where the Baals dwell. In other words, the backsliding took the form of calling on Baal rather than God, calling on their idols to comfort them. Verse 5 begins and ends with the same word, repent, return, and repent. Israel will return to Egypt, that is Assyria, because they refuse to return to God. In fact, they are determined to turn away from him. Matthew quotes these verses in the account of the flight of Jesus into Egypt after his birth. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Herod had uh, issued an edict for infanticide to kill all of the male children uh, under two years of age. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Hosea was not talking about Israel's past. 
or was talking about Israel's past, not the Messiah's future. So at the first sight, Hebrews 11.1 1 can seem kind of an odd verse for Matthew to apply to Jesus. But Matthew knew that Jesus had done what Israel had failed to do. Jesus is God's faithful, obedient son. The Son of God had originally been called out of Egypt and had proved, or the Son that God had originally called out of Egypt, Israel, had proved to be disobedient and false. Now in Jesus, another Son has come back from exile in Egypt, and he proves to be a true Son. And so when we put our faith in Christ, he becomes our representative. We are in Christ. And it is in Christ that we are treated as God's beloved children, even when we're unfaithful and disobedient. But in verses 8 and 9, which are amazing, we see a glimpse of the Father's merciful heart, his compassion. These verses take us to the very heart of Hosea's message. In verses 1 through 7, we saw God's tender, fatherly love for his people. But his people have been a rebellious son who deserved judgment. Is there any hope for this family? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils, literally overthrows within me. My heart overthrows within me my compassion grows warm and tender now let me say this is not Hosea speaking here this is God speaking here this is what God says about himself I will not again destroy Ephraim is literally I will return to ruin Ephraim or I will turn from ruining Ephraim in verse 5, Israel refused to return or repent to God. So they deserve to return to slavery, but now God turns. He turns away from his anger. It may be an allusion, and probably is, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when God sent angels ahead to investigate the evil of these cities before returning to destroy them. But why will God turn from his anger? Because he is the Holy One. And what a surprise. We normally associate God's holiness with his purity and his opposition to sin. But God's holiness also means his distinctiveness. You will hear theologians speak of two things regarding the nature of God. God is both transcendent and God is imminent. Transcendent means he's high and lifted up. There is a separateness there is a distinctiveness, there is a, an otherness about the nature of God and who he is. That is different than anything we can understand or even expect him to be. These are often called the incommunicable attributes, but this is God transcendent. Some theologians like Karl Barth and others seem to indicate that God is so transcendent that we can't speak confidently about anything uh, regarding his nature because he is wholly other. He is not wholly other or totally other because he's also God, trans uh, God imminent, God near us, God coming to us, God showing himself to us. And so in this case, 
The writer here, Hosea, quoting God, tells us something unique about God's nature. God is holy, that is set apart. God is set apart from human beings. He is different from us. He's not a better version of ourselves. Usually in Scripture, His holiness describes the contrast between our sinfulness and His purity. But here it describes the contrast between our resentments and His grace. His holy love. He loves in a way that is not like us. That's why I entitled the message Holy Love. Because it has just been blowing me away all week. A typical human response to being wrong is to resent it and seek revenge. But says God, I am God and not a man. In other words, God's response to the sin of his people is not like human responses. The divine response is being wronged to being wronged is grace that is totally unexpected. That's why we never get as amazed by grace as we should get by grace because it's so counterintuitive. How can you be nice to me? How can you be good to me? How can you even bless me in the face of my attitude towards you and my rebellion against you? And yet that is what makes grace amazing. Here's what John Newton said about this very passage. He said, if we had offended men or angels as we have offended our Creator and Redeemer and they had permission and power to punish us, our case would be utterly desperate. Only He who made us is able to bear with us. All the attributes as we speak of the infinite God must of course be equally infinite. As is His majesty, so is His mercy. We too easily think God is angry with his people in the way that we are angry with people. We, for example, often give people the cold shoulder until the fault is either forgotten or uh, no longer raw. But God is much more serious about sin than this. Sin does not fade from his memory. He doesn't get in a bad mood that gradually dissipates. His anger is his consistent hatred of sin. But God is also much more serious about love than we could ever be. His love is amazing. It is not changeable. It does not depend on how we treat him. He is committed to his people and determined to show their mercy. The phrase, I am God and not a man, is echoed in Numbers 23, where God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? It suggests God is making a covenant oath. We can be sure he will do what he says because he always does what he says he will do. He commits himself to his mercy. Bless his name. Amen. Bless his name. Amen. He does not vacillate. He does not change. He is not affected by what goes on with outside of him. And it does not change how his internal heart responds God loves us because he loves us and it is his nature to love us and you can't make him not love you if he loves you can't do it as one of his children the phrase I am God and not a man is overwhelming so how how can God be determined to judge in verses 5 through 7 and then determined to save in verses 8 through 9 
God's determination to judge and his determination to save are in tension with one another here in Hosea. Almost as if God can't make up his mind, but we know that's not true. But they are resolved where? At the cross. At the cross, God's determination to judge and his determination to save are both realized. His judgment does not compromise his mercy, and his mercy does not compromise his judgment. And this is how Paul explains it in Romans 3, 23 to 26. I have to tell you, I once heard James Montgomery Boyce preach on this passage. And though my wife thought he looked like a man from the outer limits because he had a rather large head. She, were you my wife at that time or are you dating me? You were not my wife. She was dating me. And I took her to hear this reform stuff. You know, I had an agenda. And so he's preaching on this passage. And I said, what would you think of it? She said, I couldn't get past the head. But anyway... <laughs> I remember this sermon, and it was an amazing sermon. Just listen to the passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. The word propitiation means to turn aside wrath. At the cross, God turned aside his wrath from us and directed it toward Jesus in our place. And as a result, God both justly judges and graciously saves. God does not condemn his rebellious children because the father and son agreed together that the father would condemn his own son in our place. In this is love, the writer John, uh, 1 John says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for uh, his sins. We talked about uh, the incorrigible, disobedient son in Deuteronomy. And if a man commits a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, that is by stoning, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a man, hanged man, is cursed by God. Galatians 3.13 uses this verse to describe the cross. Jesus dies the death of the disobedient son under the curse of God. He himself was the true and obedient son, but he dies in the place of his disobedient children so that we can share in his sonship. In Genesis 19, the word that is used to describe God's judgment on the cities of Adma and Zeboim is overthrow. We are told he overthrew the cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. And the same word is used in Deuteronomy 29 when Moses describes the curses that will fall on Israel if they are unfaithful to God. The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt and nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. Adma and Zeboim, along with Sodom and Gomorrah, have become a paradigm for God's judgment. This is what God's judgment looks like. It looks like an overthrow. The same word, overthrow, is used in verse 8. 
The NIV translated, my heart has changed within me. The English Standard Version translated as recoils, my heart recoils within me. The link is clearest in the New American Standard, my heart is turned over within me. At Adma and Zeboim, there was an overthrow, and now again there's an overthrow, but this time the overthrow is, is within God himself. This time it is God who is overthrown, as it were, but this time it falls on God himself in the person of his Son. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you as Zeboim? The answer is that he does not treat us like Adma or Zeboim because his son was treated like them in our place. So the father's heart is missional. Look at verses 10 and 11. There's a new metaphor. He uses a Leocene metaphor. I learned a new word this week. Leocene means what? Lion. Lion. Lion-like. And so therefore, he roars like a lion. And that roar of the lion is really the missional heart of God. God not only forgives our sin, his roar will summon his children back to the land. He will restore us to a relationship with Him. What this passage does in the midst of God's expression of tenderness toward His children, of His judgment upon His disobedient sons, gives the people, though they will go into exile, though they will be driven out of the land, though they will lose every privilege they had before the Lord, there is hope, there is a promise, there is a future, there is a restoration. The remnant of God's people will return. And this was partly fulfilled when the southern tribes returned from exile in Babylon. It was partly fulfilled in the book of Acts as the gospel went from Jerusalem to Samaria where the remnant of the northern tribes lived. It is being fulfilled as God's children around the world are summoned by his roar. But whenever we proclaim the gospel, the lion roars let that sink in for a moment when you tell your neighbor or your colleague or your friend about jesus the lion is roaring the faltering words that stumble out of our mouths are the roar of the lion in verse one god called his people out of egypt now they will again come from egypt there's going to be a second exodus. The first exodus under Moses was a real liberation of people from slavery. But it was also a picture, a type of salvation as it pointed forward to the work of Christ. Jesus is the true Passover lamb who liberates us from the ultimate tyranny of sin and death. And so that is what Hosea chapter 11 says to us today. Let us pray. Father, we do pray as we thank you for your tender mercies, as we thank you for the compassion, as we stand in awe of you as the Holy One, that you are God and not a man, and how often we need to have that truth lodged deeply in our hearts. Lord, we, we thank you for uh, your amazing grace, and we pray that we're not always amazed by it. We ask that you help us see 
how amazed we ought to be. And uh, the more we see your love, the more we would return that love both to you and to our neighbors who are broken around us and who we see every day. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give us those who are truly grateful for your grace. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.